Luke chapter 6 and <clears throat> verse 12. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you so much for being so kind to us. And we ask that you would open our eyes more and more to all the ways uh, you've been good to us, that, that we may not take anything for granted. And as we come to your word, would you, would you bring us near to you? Would you show us how much better uh, you are than anything else that the world has to offer? Would you show us how amazing Jesus is, especially during this holiday season that, that can often be very difficult for so many of us? Uh, by the Holy Spirit, would you please bring us close to you and into a more joyful relationship with you? Would you build your church and be more and more everything to us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> At this point in Luke's narrative, uh, Jesus has become quite a polarizing figure. He is both popular and, and unpopular at the same time and amongst different groups of people. And that is because Jesus is entirely different than what the people have ever seen. And that distinction can sometimes attract and it can also at the same time repel. Jesus preaches like no one else which set himself apart from the other preachers of the day. He could heal physical ailments and diseases, even things considered unhealable like leprosy and paralysis. Jesus cast out demons and unclean spirits from those ones who were oppressed the very most. He has this undeniable power over the spiritual realm. And Jesus claims to have the authority to forgive sins like only God can. He claims to be the great physician who can call the unwell and call sinners to repentance. Jesus claims to be the bridegroom who is in love with his people in a way that the Old Testament had always pictured God as being in love with his people. And it is most recently that Jesus has declared that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, the author, the creator, the designer of the day, which makes him supreme over it. These are extreme and undeniable demonstrations of Jesus' identity as the Son of God and as God himself. He is so high above anyone else. And yet it is that he comes to the weak, to the vile, to the poor, the broken. He calls even the tax collector and the worst sinner to leave all and follow him. He touches the untouchable leper. The Lord has come to his people and thus his popularity and, and the crowds of his followers have increased sometimes to the point where he has to go and preach from a boat because they're pressing in on him too much. And yet at the same time, Jesus' adversaries have also increased in their hatred for him as well. They're jealous of him and of his influence and his growing popularity. They do not like the kind of company he keeps and the types of followers that he has. A, a real spiritual person wouldn't spend time with the riffraff like Jesus does. They resent him. They can't stand him because he is a threat to their lifestyles. He's a danger to their careers as influencers, their comfort, their own authority over the people. And so the Pharisees and the scribes who started off uh, investigating Jesus they moved on to doubting him and then trying to trap him and discredit him publicly. And they have escalated from that to wanting to destroy Jesus. They actually want to kill him. And ironically, they make these plans on a Sabbath day. And it will be within the space of about two years that they are going to succeed in doing so. And Jesus is going to find himself hanging upon the cross, though no crime of his own committed. But he will die there for the sins of his people. 
And it's in our text that we come to a point where Jesus begins to prepare for his own departure. That in the midst of a great hostility and a growing hatred, with the knowledge that he would not continue in his ministry in person for even a couple more years. Jesus wants to gather a group of followers to himself who would be the future leaders of his church and the very ones who would carry on his own ministry after his death and resurrection and ascension. We find Jesus in these verses planning and preparing for the future of the church who would be without his bodily presence. We read in verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. We have in these verses the supernatural foundations of the future church and the process by which Jesus chooses the future leadership of his church. Jesus' plan again, knowing that his enemies are going to succeed in having himself murdered, his plan is to invest himself into 12 people who are currently following him. And that number 12 is analogous to the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, the religious leadership of the nation of the 12 tribes of Israel or what's left of them, collectively they have at this point rejected Jesus wholeheartedly. And no matter what kind of proof, no matter what kind of proclamation or prophecy is being fulfilled, no matter what kind of miracle or healing Jesus can perform before their eyes, the leadership of the 12 tribes of Israel, their hearts are hardened towards him, and thus Jesus is choosing 12 new leaders from which he would build his church and his kingdom. It's from these followers and not the religious gurus of the nation, but from these 12 men that the spiritual leadership of God's people would arise. Jesus is going to take from his disciples. And that word disciple just simply means a learner, a student, a follower. Jesus is going to make 12 of those followers into apostles. And that word means sent one, a delegate, a messenger, or an envoy. And so those who are currently learning from him would later begin to represent him. An apostle representing the one who sent him carries a, a message with the same power and authority. And so in one sense, we all as believers are sent out or sent ones and we all represent Jesus Christ with the gospel message and works of love that adorn that message. But here it is that Jesus is commissioning, commissioning these 12 in this official kind of capacity because they are going to be his chief messengers. Listen to Ephesians 2.20, which talks about the household of God being built and is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so God is laying the foundation of his church upon the coming work of these select few. The book of Acts, which is also written by Luke in Acts 2.41, speaks about the practice of the early church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Well, why not devote yourselves to Jesus' teaching? Well, that's exactly what the early church did because these apostles being sent from Jesus himself represented Jesus himself as a delegate and as an envoy to the point where the early church's devotion to the apostles' teaching is devotion to Jesus' teaching. This is why so much of the New Testament is traced in source and authorship to the very people represented in our passage. This is why so much of what we study has been delivered 
to us by God through these apostles because the very church would be founded upon the ministry of the 12. So much so that the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 14, speaking about the new Jerusalem and the heavenly city, it says there, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so think about it. The foundation of the church, the foundation of heaven itself, is upon Jesus Christ, cornerstone, and these delegates who would be his initial and chief messengers whose ministry would be central to God's own plan of salvation for the nations. How are we, a local church body and a local church family, existing in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? Because the Son of God chose these apostles to represent himself, to take the gospel into the world. It all begins right in our text. And so these very men would, for the next couple of years, be poured into by the Son of God, walking with him, learning from him, watching his every move, and witnessing his very own heart. They would be the people to initially preach the gospel to the nations. And so make no mistake, there are no new apostles today in this official sense. If you ever hear from some random church about this 13th and 14th or 15th apostle with some new teaching, that's not from God. There's only one foundation that has been poured, and it is being poured right here in these verses. But what we have here in our very passage is a picture of Jesus thinking about the future of his eternal church. He has this long-term view in mind. This is the Son of God and our Savior and our Lord thinking about the good of the people he would call and form as his very own. This passage shows to us the selfless nature of Jesus Christ. One who is not consumed with me, 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 me at this moment. I mean, he's done everything to authenticate himself. In his preaching, his teaching, healing miracles, his authority over the spiritual realm. And yet he's been rejected by the very people who should have welcomed him with open arms. And this rejection is going to turn very violent very soon. And yet what does our Savior do? Does he cry himself a river? No, he plans and prays and thinks for the future of his own people, even with his own suffering and death imminent. And I remember when my grandma, who raised so many of us, because she took us into her home to live with her, when she was nearing her own passing, she told me, hey, when I die, cry big one time, that's all. One day, cry after that, no more. Okay, and she held out her pinky, she said, promise me. It's because her own death was not even her central concern. But the people who would outlast her time on earth were more of her concern. And Jesus, he loves his people and, and begins to plan for his own departure by thinking about the future good of his church, his bride, his people, even when his own suffering and death are on the immediate horizon. And what is it that Jesus does prior to choosing of these 12 very important people? Does he hold a brainstorming session? Does he get the whiteboard out and think strategy and study culture? Does he hire some analytics committee to figure out what best personalities would be conducive to the mission at hand? Build a team with the most efficient kind of chemistry? No, we, we find Jesus here going to a quiet place 
where he could devote himself to undisturbed prayer because what Jesus needs most and what the church needs most at this crucial time in redemptive history is the Son of God finding solitude and communion with his Father uninterruptedly. This union is the most important thing at a period of time such as this. And Luke has shown to us over and over just how much Jesus prays to the Father. Uh, 5.16, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is Jesus' ongoing habit. And I think that one of the mistakes we can make when reading through the book of Luke is to assume that since Jesus is the Son of God, that his relationship with the Father uh, was somehow utterly effortless and required no sort of cultivation at all. But Luke in particular shows to us that as indwelt by the Holy Spirit as Jesus is, and as truly divine as the Son of God will always be, there is over and over, again and again, this intentional seeking to commune with his Father. Even Jesus had to be deliberate in this relationship. And that's a lesson for us, brothers and sisters. We so often have to be utterly intentional in our relationship with the Lord. Otherwise, that relationship is never going to be cultivated. At high spiritual moments or the low ones, that unless we retreat and find time to be alone and undisturbed, I mean, you might have to do it in the middle of the night like Jesus did here. But we must. Otherwise, our relationship with him will never be enjoyed as much as it could be. And our wisdom and decision-making ability attuned to the will of God will never be calibrated as much as it should be. Or our response to negativity and our love for others and, and the future well-being of the people of God will never be attuned the way it needs to be. We will never arrive at the place where we could unless we have our secret and undisturbed, uninterrupted times with our Heavenly Father. So often it is that we approach our problems and issues and drama and conflict within our own lives with analysis and gossip and asking all our friends what we should do and Google and Reddit and gathering a litany of opinions and only really turn to prayer if we cannot turn to anyone or to anything else as if prayer was only when everything else fails us. But we see here that prayer is the first thing, brothers and sisters, not the last. Communion with God is the most important thing and not the least. And if we could but just give ourselves to him, God always gladly gives himself to us. The issue is never on his side. And so the question is, what are some practical ways even this week that you can make your relationship with God your priority? And maybe you can ask your small group to keep you accountable to some of those. What are some of the ways that you can cultivate a life of prayer that will begin to more and more dictate even the most important decisions and life choices you have to make. And that will condition your responses to conflict and negativity around you. Unless we are intentional, it is never going to happen. And so in these verses, I think we have a portrait of the Son of God praying all night not only for himself to be faithful and remain perfect in the fierce face of violent hostility, but even more so, we find our Savior on his hands and on his knees praying for the good 
of his bride whom he loves, his people, even deep into the future and long after his own bodily departure. Jesus is pouring the foundation of his church by preparing the future leadership of the church. This is a picture of the Father and the Son coming together for the good of their people. Verse 14, we continue with the list of the ones Jesus chooses. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. These 12 would be the 12 disciples and form the group of apostles to be the foundation of the church, minus Judas Iscariot. But on first glance, if the future of the church really rests upon the shoulders of these men listed here, then the future of the church is looking pretty doomed. These are a bunch of ordinary guys, unschooled and not well-connected. They carry no juice within their community. These are not the religious leaders, nor are they political leaders. These are not the figureheads of any kind of movement. Most of them are from Podunk, Galilee, and Galilee today is still very podunk. We have four fishermen, a guy named Thomas who is most famously known for his ability to doubt. We have a couple of guys we know almost nothing about, and two of them definitely would not get along. We have Matthew, the ex-tax collector, and Simon, who is called the zealot. And let me explain to you why these guys would not get along. In the first century, during Jesus' time, the nation of Israel had been completely dominated by the nation of Rome. Israel is not its own country. They are under the authority of another. And so the zealot is one Hebrew nationalist. We will never bow the knee. We will not recognize the authority of Caesar. We are our own. I think we should rebel. We should fight. We should take up arms. I'm willing to die for my country. That's the zealot. And the task collector is one. I ain't going to fight. But what I will do, although a Hebrew myself, what I will do is work for Rome and tax my own people. I mean, we can't beat Rome anyway. And when you can't beat them, join them. So I will join Rome and sell out my own people so that I can make a comfortable living for myself being a sellout. You think the Democrats and the Republicans have it out for each other? And when there are only 12 guys in a group, it's not like these guys can really avoid each other. This is not a good locker room culture on first glance. As we will continue in the book of Luke, it's not as if these 12 aren't hard-headed, stubborn, proud, and slow to learn. And then we come to the last guy listed as Judas Iscariot, who would become a traitor. He isn't one yet, but this very Judas would be the key insider to betray Jesus for 30 coins and hand him over to the ones who want to kill Jesus and lead him to the cross. Judas Iscariot is the one who is going to betray Jesus with a kiss. Is this really the answer to a long night of deep prayer between the Son and the Father? If this list of ordinary, unqualified, disunited, and even traitorous people is supposed to be the foundation of the future church, well, you can see the cracks already. 
Are generations of Christians supposed to be devoting themselves to their teaching? If the future of Christianity rests upon these men, we're toast. Well, that's precisely the point. It's precisely the point. It does not rest upon this list of ordinary people. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Those are the questions Paul's asking the church. It's not like we're all that. Verse 26 of the same passage, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The future of the eternal church never rested upon the shoulders of these ordinary guys. The future of the eternal church is much too weighty to be placed upon the shoulders of any man. The church rests upon Jesus Christ. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. And he is our redemption. It rests not on them, but upon the God who called them and the Savior who has prayed for them. The sustaining power comes from the Son and the Father communing all night to establish the future of what is to come. It is a product of their union and this prayer. The foundation of the church is utterly supernatural and that foundation again is being poured on this very night that even the traitor whom Luke lists last is not an aberration to the plan. It's not because God didn't see that one coming. But in the powerful, sovereign plan and purposes of God, even the traitor would be the instrument for the most powerful redemption creation will ever see. Jesus already knows the heart of this man. And Jesus will continue to love and display his own glory to Judas Iscariot, even when he knows it's never going to win him. But Jesus' eyes are both wide open and he knows that this will end all with his body broken and bloodied upon the cross and yet so be it. I am praying for the future of my bride whom I love after I pay the debt of the bride whom I love for I am more concerned with them on this night than I am even concerned with myself upon this night. Brothers and sisters, there is no one who loves you like Jesus loves you. No one. And even when you don't know the end of your own story or the point of your own sufferings or the intention or the purpose of your own conflicts, you can trust the one who loves you like this. Now I want to hit a quick few points of application before we move on. We see here that Jesus builds his church from a variety of different kinds of peoples and backgrounds, that even those who are naturally enemies can come together for the good of the church. We have zealot and tax collector. 
Israel sovereignty movement and sell out upon the same theme. And this isn't just a few years of conflict. This is generations of conflict between these two kinds of people. And yet they come together helping to form the foundation of the church because what they have in common in Jesus Christ trumps anything politically, culturally, that they may have indifference. I think this is a pointer for us in a very divided age. We're being trained by the media again and again to divide it into these subsets and that nothing can unite us unless we agree upon some issues. Can we not all get along with COVID drama that's just two years old? This isn't even generations. It ain't even two years. If we can't, it doesn't mean grit our teeth and try harder. If we can't, it more likely means that Jesus is not actually the center of who we are, but tax collecting is, or being a political zealot is, or personal freedom is, or safety is. And that is an indicator that something has replaced our Savior as the very center of our beings. We have Jesus in our text loving a Judas Iscariot and even serving him for the rest of the book of Luke and even washing his feet in the book of John. So often it is that our drama and conflict continues because Jesus is not enough for so many of us. And if he's not, well, his arms are wide open to us at all times so that we can run right back into them. And so if we find ourselves not being able to love those within our church family because of differences of opinions and differences of cultures and backgrounds, perhaps it is time to take a look at our own relationship with Jesus as he is bringing symptomatically to our attention signs of something which may be much deeper. And if it is deeper at that level, run, run, run back to Jesus Christ. Secondly, when we think about the ministry of the church... So often we think about human ability and human ingenuity and popularity and aptitude and personality type. And we so often want to build the church in the same way that any worldly person wants to build a business. And then we have confidence in these kinds of CEO leaders or celebrity pastors and whatnot. That is not what we are seeing in our passage. I read this quote from Oswald Chambers in Philip Ryken's commentary on Luke. And it says this, God can achieve his purposes either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural ability and resources. I think that one of the ways we know we have renounced our dependence on natural ability and resources is the amount of time we actually spend in prayer. And we know how much we are leaning upon our own strength and ingenuity by the time we spend off our hands and knees. We cannot do the real work of ministry on human strength, brothers and sisters. We simply cannot. The kingdom of God is entirely independent of help from this world. That's what J.C. Ryle says. 
The church is not built by might or by power, but by the spirit of the living God. If there is anything that this text shows to us outside of the love that Jesus Christ has for his people is that the church must be built by supernatural means. And there are many of us in this room who are never going to preach a sermon. There are many of us in this room who have a very difficult time even articulating the gospel in evangelism, who are never going to sling the stone between Goliath's eyes. But you can pray, brothers and sisters. We can all pray. And the prayers of God's people will drive the furthering of the kingdom of God. And then one of the greatest surprises on resurrection morning will be just how much the prayers of those who devoted their lives to do so really push this very kingdom forward. Lastly, I want you to notice after a night of prayer that Jesus' life doesn't magically get easier. This is a motley group of mediocre people at best with a Judas Iscariot at the end of the list. Prayer does not always make things easier. Prayer does not always give you the life you've always dreamed for. In fact, as a result, and after this prayer, Jesus' sufferings are actually going to intensify. But once we begin to know the end of Jesus' story, we are utterly happy that God's plan comes to fruition the way that it does. It's because of Jesus' own betrayal and his own sufferings, and even his own violent death, that that will all result in the salvation of our souls. I want to encourage some of you who are going through very difficult times that you do not know the end of your story yet. Sometimes you've cried for something. You've prayed for it, and God doesn't give that to you. But sometimes it is in God's providence that the way he answers our prayers in a thousand years from this morning, we're not going to regret the way that he did answer them. That although we did not get our way or an easier life, God will be glorified in a way he wouldn't ordinarily be able to be glorified in your particularly short life on this earth. Verse 17, and we'll close with this. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. We have Jesus in the very center of all the people who have need. We have a snapshot of Jesus' ministry. This is an internship of sorts for the 12 disciples so that they could see and know more of the identity of the one whom they left all to follow. People are coming from Judea and Jerusalem. These are religious areas. People are coming from Tyre and Sidon. These are pagan areas. Those inside Israel, outside of Israel, they're all coming, many from very far distances. And I think that's a reminder that if you have to drive to a good church, then make the drive. But the crowds are hearing about the kingdom of God and they are having the effects of the sin-ravaged world reversed in their healings. They're having the influence of unclean spirits removed. And the very center point of the solution to everything that they are enduring is being found in Jesus Christ and in his power. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the only one who can heal. 
He's the only one who can help you with what is ailing you. God has sent Jesus to us, and he is the only one who can offer the very thing that we need most. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the only solution to the problems that you're going through today? Well, then you have to give yourself to him. He's willing to give himself to you. And this is why we celebrate the Advent. For God has sent his son into the world to save the world. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, that your work of salvation doesn't rest upon us at all. The building of your church does not rest upon ourselves at all. Father, we thank you that this plan is your plan, and yet by your grace we get to be a part of it. That by your grace you save us. That by your grace you sanctify us. That by your grace the sinner can become righteous. And by your grace we can spend our lives for a purpose so much bigger than just ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us near to you that you would give us a joy in your love for us. Open our eyes by the Holy Spirit to just how much it is you love us and let that outshine everything else in this world. I pray, God, that we'd be a one-minded people, single-minded and focused, that you would make us a church family so united that the watching world might truly understand who you really are. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.